Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. I wanted to give you a quick update. At the end of last year, we gave together in our legacy offering, and I uh, just want to tell you how much I and our, our leadership team appreciate your faithful and generous sacrificial worship giving. We more uh, nearly doubled um, what was a, a, an overwhelming and surprising legacy offering from 2019. 2019's was uh, 60-some thousand, and this year no, sorry, 80-some thousand, and this year was over 160. So thank you. Uh, just so blessed to be a part of, of a, a generous church. The point of legacy, of course, is um, endowing us as a church family to be able to be generous and responsive on every occasion when need arises that's unforeseen and unplanned or strategic opportunity. We've already made a couple of legacy investments, and this morning I'd like to give you a quick update on one of them. We'll do this from time to time over the course of the year to let you know how we are uh, sensing the Lord lead us to invest those, um, those worship dollars. Many of you, most of you know that for the last few months, the, much of the continent of Australia has been on fire, and it's left incredible wreckage and devastation in lives and in communities and structures. We searched for and found uh, a facilitator organization in Hillsong Church, uh, a big sister church in every way that we look up to and learn so much for, from. Of course, we sing many of their songs. And um, being there on the ground, they had the opportunity and the position to express care and marshal and, and funnel resources, both in, in, in ways that would be immediately most helpful, as well as in ways that would represent the gospel. And uh, wanted to read this update to you from Pastor Brian Houston of Hillsong Church. He says, there are still fires burning across the nation, and the fire season is far from over. Communities are reeling from the devastation, and many families are picking through the wreckage of their homes and livelihoods, wondering where to begin. There is an uncommon hope and a coming together that characterizes the people of this nation when faced with extreme heartbreak. And it is this and the generosity that rises up in the midst of it all that confounds the bleakness of the loss. We extend our heartfelt thanks to everyone who has generously donated to our bushfire appeal. As a global church, we have now raised over 1.2 million Australian dollars to support firefighters and people directly affected by the communities. <clears throat> With careful consideration, we've been able to quickly resource key trusted organizations on the ground and partner with them to get the funds to where it is needed most. This also includes the rebuilding efforts that lie in the months and years ahead for the many communities that have been devastated by the fires. And so I just wanted to extend my thanks as well. Thank you for your generosity. When we responded without hopefully pressure or any compulsion, just as the Lord gave us grace and opportunity, we didn't, we didn't know some of the needs, many of the crises that would eventuate this year, but God knew and your faith and your trust in him represented Jesus in such a practical manifestation 
manifest way. Many of those people, the millions who have been affected and many devastated by these fires, have no notion of Jesus as their Savior, but they're experiencing Jesus, his love poured out from a global church that represents him, whom they'll likely never even meet. You're a part of that. and just want to tell you thank you so much. Mari and I and our team are just so grateful to be a part of a church that, one, is so generous, and two, so deeply values people's lives. When we give, that's what we're doing. We're not giving to some organization or corporation. We're giving to see people's lives changed by Jesus. And thank you for caring so much about that. Can we just give God an ovation of praise? What an awesome thing that in the midst of the darkness, Jesus' light always shines. You ready to study the word this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, would you give insight into your word? Holy Spirit, we invite you to illuminate it and cause it to sink deep in our hearts. And we give it our attention now, and this is our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've told you before that I attended a, a somewhat of an unusual high school. It was a prep school for the children of the rich, famous, and elite. I was by no means elite. I was an ordinary kid out of place among extraordinary ones. Um, but I, and I take no credit for that. I just went where my parents sent me. They valued education. And so that's where I went. Uh, my classmates were... were um, senators and congressmen's kids. We had a presidential candidate's uh, child in, in our class. So we had one year secret service everywhere in, in classes. Um, uh, heads of, of multinational corporations, kids, um, foreign heads of states, children. It, it, was, a, it was an un, unusual environment that taught me many good things and sunk deep into my heart many things that I spent years and decades learning to identify and then extract. There was absolutely unimaginable wealth all around me. And coming from the home of an army colonel, we were always provided for, but we weren't wealthy. And so I had th this, this exposure that was a fascination with um, the importance of wealth, right? We were told by, uh, by our convocation speakers, by our gra my graduation speaker was the president, of the United States, not of the school, right? He was my graduation speaker and he, he was an alum of our school. And so we, we were all constantly being told, you owe it to humanity to become successful and wealthy. Uh, and, and, and even though that sounds insufferably arrogant, and it is, that was just the waters I swam in. I didn't know um, that, it was, that, that it was that, right? So uh, I, I remember in particular, I had a classmate, his name was Rahim Rahim bin something, Al something, uh, a couple more things, Al Saud. And so he was a descendant of the House of Saud, which those of you geopolitics buffs know is the family that owns the very wealthy Middle East nation, Saudi Arabia. Like, how can a family own a country? Well, they kind of started it. This family um, hit it rich and got big in, in the Arabian Peninsula. And it would be like Neil, Pastor Neil's family living in Saudi Arabia and having some good ideas and having a big personality and gathering people and starting a country and calling it Cheshire Arabia. That's what Saudi Arabia is. It's, it's literally owned by the, the family in the house of Saud, right? So the one, all of the descendants of the, the Saud clan are fabulously wealthy. The direct descendants, the sons and grandsons of the founders are all multi-billionaires, some of the world's wealthiest people. But even the great-grandchildren and cousins and things like that, they're all phenomenally wealthy. One of them was in my class. The wealth that, that was his that all he had ever known was just unimaginable. I mean, he, was, he would come back from Thanksgiving break and be dropped off on campus in a helicopter. 
Because, you know, a, a, a limousine cavalcade from Logan Airport to my town was just too much to be bothered with, right? The traffic and whatnot. Uh, just you wouldn't believe his dorm room. It was a boarding school. Uh, and so this was what I saw as normal. And like every high school kid, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to see myself as a part of something. I wanted to belong. And I took it deep into my heart, more so than I realized until years and years later, this notion that uh, I was destined for greatness. And I, I owed it to my fellow humans to be rich and successful and employ others and keep the world marching forward. Totally twisted, right? Um, you know how we've said many times, we live, we humans, from our depths, most of which we don't understand? I would add as a corollary, we live sometimes from depths that are so deep, we don't even acknowledge them. We're not even conscious that they're there. And swimming around in the inky darkness of the sub-depths of our soul are some funky fish. And those things are some of what uh, are, are influencing the way we live. There's some stuff down in our subconscious being that's pulling strings and controlling us. And so this lust for wealth, if I'm honest, is, it's embarrassing to say it to you. Um, it carried me and stayed with me after college. I met Jesus in a personal way during those college years received a call to ministry and nurtured and developed that call and began my pastoral career with this co-influencing me alongside Jesus, unbeknownst to me or under-acknowledged, buried down deep in my soul like a subroutine that was pulling my strings. And it took me years to identify and invite Jesus to remove. Anyone experience that? Middle age has a way of holding a mirror up to you, even if you don't value self-awareness. Life sometimes forces you to see yourself clearly, and then you have to decide, what am I going to do with this crushing knowledge? We're continuing and concluding our series this morning called Postures of the Heart. It's in Psalms 1 through 5, and it's a simple, singular idea, a posture of the heart, a way of being, more than a list of doing agenda items with which we're beginning the year. These psalms, on one hand, are so simple as to almost feel simplistic, but they take a lifetime to master the ways of God. Well, last week, Pastor Daniel did a wonderful job of teaching us out of Psalm 5, and so this week, we're going to conclude with Psalm 4, and you're like, wait a minute, those are out of order. Well, Psalm 5 sort of resonated with a life message of Pastor Daniel's that so many of us on our staff and leadership team have received from, that we really wanted you guys um, to be able to receive from that, and we figured Jesus would be okay with flip-flopping the order. So we're going to go back and wrap it up with Psalm chapter 4. Does that sound okay? All right, we're going to read it. I just want to read it to you. We'll put the verses up on the screen as we study them, but I, I first don't want to study it. I just want to read it. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So if you've got your Bibles, you can read along with me in Psalm 4. If not, just, just close your eyes and hear this. Hear the word of God. Starting in verse 3, the Bible teaches, you can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. Many will say, who will show us better times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain 
and new wine. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. I confess I puzzled more over this than the other four combined in these first five psalms. It is simple and it is brief, but it's hardly singular. It feels like it's going in four or five directions, a little scattered, and it took me some time of reflection and prayer to get a handle on what would the Lord have us take from this. So if you look with me at Psalm 4 as a starting point, the the passage teaches don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't sin by letting anger control you. And um, I I puzzled over this because the rest of the passage doesn't seem to have any connection to the idea of anger. Maybe it was a preceding psalm and the divisions were imposed later and it's reflecting on that, but it kind of goes in a different direction right afterward. And so I, after a time, zoomed out and thought about the idea of sin. On the one hand, it's so familiar, we all know intuitively what it's talking about. But on the other hand, there is a broad and comprehensive definition that might be more subtle. I would suggest that sin in its broadest context is falling short of God's good design for your life, right? All have sinned, Romans teaches, and fallen short of the glory of God. When we sin, here's the net effect. We fall short of the design for which God created us. It's settling for less than that which God built us and enlivened us and redeemed us in order to experience, Sin is, in short, believing God is not enough. And I believe all of sin in its particular expressions is a variation on that theme. Looking to get my own, take care of myself, because something in me at some level, maybe deeply suppressed in the depths of my soul, doesn't believe that God is enough. And in that way, it's sin to let anger control you. In that way, it's sin to allow anything to control you. And that's really the premise, I believe, of this passage from which we're going to start with our study of this heart posture. It's sin allowing anything to control you. We're made in God's image, and we weren't made to be controlled by anything. To submit to Jesus in in one moment only to allow some subroutine to continue to pull our strings and program our actions. That's sin. That's falling short of the good design God has for us. We weren't, we weren't made to be controlled. We were made to live free. And that's our title for this morning. And the last posture of heart to which we'll give our attention at the start of this year What does it mean to live free? Jesus shed some light on this question in John chapter 8. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say the truth is going to set us free or that we'll become free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins, listen, is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son or a daughter belongs to it forever. So if the son of God sets you free, then you're free indeed. This full idea of freedom, not only free from the penalty of sin, free from being hellbound and reunited with God, but free of the enduring control that sin 
maintains in our lives when we voluntarily allow it. Peter, one of the ones who sat and listened to Jesus talk the most, decades later is pastoring a young congregation of his own and reflects on this idea. You are a slave, he writes, to whatever controls you. There is in this an underlying theological reality that's important to draw out, and that is that everyone serves somebody. Everyone serves something. It's a... It's a, a false ideal to suggest that even if religion was the bad version of Jesus' relationship and instead it's controlling and oppressive and we decide at some point we're going to cast that off. We're going to live free and I'm going to be independent. It's an illusion. In the soul of a human, there is no authentic independence. part of what it means to be us. Everyone serves somebody or something. I love Bob Dylan. I love the journey of discipleship that he had, two steps forward and one step back as it was. I love the insight God gave him into the human soul and its plight. And I love his way with words, how he captured those insights in poetry. Listen to what he's saying. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's how it works. I think it's captured poignantly in uh, my favorite little cartoon. Everyone serves a porpoise. Somewhere out there, teenagers groan. When we choose to serve Jesus instead of the stuff of the world, that's when we find authentic freedom. When we choose to serve Jesus instead of serving the stuff of the world, that's when we find authentic freedom. And I think, isn't that the heart and soul of the gospel? It says in Galatians, we studied that last year, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He didn't just set us free. He set us free in order to live in this freedom. So don't return any longer to a yoke of slavery. What a shame. What a slight to God's good design that we should receive freedom from the penalty of sin, only willingly to subjugate ourselves to the control of something else that falls short of God's glory. His glorious design for you and me. We're made in his image. We're made to live free. And that's why Jesus' proposition is, yes, I am your master because I am God. I've created you. It's not that he wants to control your life. We tend to see religion painted in these stark, false colors where God asks us to come and follow Jesus, to submit to him, and then he grinds us down under his thumb and forces us into subjugation. But that's not how Jesus was. Remember what he said? I, you call me Savior and Lord, and that's right because that's what I am, but I'm among you as one who serves. He said, come to me. I'm humble and gentle of heart. Come and learn from me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your souls. He said, 
Whoever would try to save his life is going to lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, I'm going to give it back to you. You're going to find it rich, abundant, satisfying, overflowing, and full. This is the heart of the gospel. We weren't made to be enslaved. We weren't made to be controlled. We were set free from sin in order to live free as God created us to live. Jesus came to restore us and all things to God's original design. And his freedom enables us to live uncontrolled by the powerful forces of this broken world. In the seminally important chapter, Romans 8, it summarizes that that's really why Jesus came, that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay, from the strings that pulled and jerked it around like a marionette. So the question is then, How do we live into that, this glorious freedom of the children of God, which Jesus came to restore to us? Truth of the human condition is either we're surrendered or we're controlled. There's no middle ground. So the question is, how do we choose to surrender to Jesus? How do we purpose to live free? fascinating to me in Psalm 4, our primary text this morning, that immediately after verse 4, where we began, which teaches, don't sin by being controlled by worldly influences. Anger is one, the one that is on his heart. Scripture reinforces that anything controlling us is our choosing not to believe that God is enough, our settling for less than his design. Falling short of his glory, that's what sin is, right? That verse is followed immediately by verse 5, which reads at first like a non sequitur. What does this have to do with that? It says, offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. What does that have to do with letting anger control you? Well, it's saying don't let worldly influences pull your strings. Instead, offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. It seems that choosing worship, which involves authentic sacrifice, substantiates our trust in God. Choosing worship, which involves authentic sacrifice, substantiates our trust in God. A friend told me yesterday, basketball coaches always say things twice. Basketball coaches always say things twice. (laughs) I think it's true of preachers as well. We're not talking about compulsory worship here, you know, that turns the religious screws and not obligatory, check the block, go through the motion, stand up, sit down, say the word, sing the song, but don't let it penetrate your heart kind of worship. And we're not talking about the flimsy worship that pitches a dollar or two in the bucket to tip God, but doesn't inconvenience itself or set back any of its priorities. We're talking about actual sacrifice, sacrifice with teeth offered in the right spirit. This is, I think, what God was getting at when he gave Moses the original covenant on top of Mount Sinai to describe to his people. He says, I want them to worship me by bringing sacrifices. Animal sacrifice seems so arcane and gory now, but animals were their economy. Animal husbandry was their primary industry. And so asking them to sacrifice animals was asking them to make a sacrifice that cost. And God said, I don't want the animals that have skin diseases, the scrawny ones. I want the ones that you would otherwise eat or sell. 
And one read of this goes, God, what kind, of tyr- uh, what kind of tyrant is he, right? He has everything. He can snap his fingers and make more lambs. And he wants to take the few things that we work by the sweat of our brow to cultivate for ourselves. What a jerk. But see, that's not the spirit. God makes clear, I don't need your animals. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I'm not short of cash. I'm not looking for your money. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I invented money. I'm looking for your heart. And God knows that authentic sacrifice, sacrifice with teeth, sacrifice that isn't lip service, sacrifice that means something to us is how we learn to trust in him and how we find authentic freedom in Christ. But don't take my word for it. Let's read on. Choosing to be a worship giver is choosing to live free. I think that's the point this is making. Choosing to be a worship giver is choosing to live free. And that, I believe, is the big idea. When we worship by sacrificing the stuff that allures us most, we're telling all the stuff that allures us, you're not in control. And moreover, we're telling God, I trust you to meet my needs and fulfill my heart. I believe that you are more than enough for me. You who created me knows what it means for me to be fulfilled. This is the way we make a choice to surrender to Jesus that actually means something. This is the way we live free. So why is money the linchpin of freedom? It's a question worth asking. Why not something else? Jesus shed some light on this in a really important interaction that he had that's recorded in three of the Gospels. Very few stories are accounted for in all three of the synoptic Gospels. This is one of them we'll read in Mark chapter 10. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Much is made out of this so-called rich young ruler. Many of you will have read this or heard sermons preached on it in the past. Sometimes we read him like we read the Pharisees whom Jesus sees the false motives in and kind of calls them out. But this young man is different. He goes running up to an itinerant, uneducated pseudo-rabbi who was a carpenter last year. That does not befit a man of his station. And he falls on his knees in front of him, soiling his expensive robes. That does not happen. Jesus does what Jesus often does. He answers his question sideways with another question. What does the scripture teach? How do you read it? And the man's like, well, the commandments say do this and don't do this and don't do this. And Jesus is like, all right, do that and you're good. And the guy's like, I've kept all these from my birth. One of the parallel gospel accounts adds and then he asks the second question. What else is there? I know there's something more. My heart is barren witness. I can't put my finger on it. What else do I need to do? Remember how Jesus responded? Looking at the man, verse 21, he felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done since you asked. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, then come and follow me. 
At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. We've done all kinds of things in the name of this passage, created whole movements of church that are built around vows of poverty, thinking that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted people poor, and then that meant we really cared about God. You know, we've told people, you got to give it all to follow Jesus. But do you remember the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector? I would say he was even more notorious as a sinner than this guy. And he had a repentant heart. He came running up to Jesus also, in effect. And um, he said, teacher, here and now today, I'm going to give half of everything I own away. And Jesus didn't go like, um, yeah, appreciate your heart, man. The repentance seems genuine, but oh, so awkward. Um, it's actually all. You got to give it all away. Somebody said, he said, today salvation has come to this home. The point isn't the percentage. The point isn't the amount. The point is a heart that's fully surrendered. That man's heart was hung up on something else. There were different funky fish swimming around in his inky depths, pulling the strings like a marionette. But this rich young man, Jesus looked at him and loved him, and he saw what was really controlling him, and he loved him too much to allow that control to continue. And so he said, if you want to be perfect, if you want to really know what's gnawing at your heart and what's lacking in your soul, sell it all, cut the strings, end the control, and then come and follow me. Don't live with a divided heart any longer. And that was hard for him. He didn't want to give up that control. He authentically loved God. Seems he just loved money more. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff it'll just fade away and you won't care about it anymore. And you'll just want to move to a mountaintop and live in a commune and read boring books in a language that's dead. It's not what he said. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that you have been seeking first, once you start seeking them second, third, and fourth, where they rightly order in your heart, then they'll be added to you as well. And not only that, they'll be explosive because you are made for them. You are made to build the kingdom of God for them. Through them, you are made to change planet earth and rescue people. Your desire for wealth, your desire for influence, your desire for relationships, all these things matter second, third, and fourth if you'll seek first the kingdom of God. There is a little invisible throne in every one of our hearts and Jesus said, I must sit on it. It's how you're made. The lesson of the young ruler may be that money is, for most of us, the final frontier. And the subtle truth in that lesson is that when we trust God with our money, then we finally trust God. That's the bottom line. When we trust God with our money, then we finally trust God. When we trust him with everything else, but hold on to that thing that matters most to us, we say to God, I'll receive salvation. I know I need forgiveness, but I don't believe that you're enough. So I'm gonna do this part of my own and we stay controlled. When we trust God with our money, we finally trust God fully, and then we're free. 
It amazes me over 20 years of pastoral ministry how often I've watched people release all else to God, careers, education, relationships, health, even their own broken hearts, and hold on to the money. Friends, I would suggest that the thing we will not submit to God is the thing that is really our master. We can say we're serving God, but Jesus made it clear no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But listen, make no mistake about it. You cannot serve God and money. I'm ashamed to say I was well into my young pastoral career when I finally got this lesson. I had built a 6,000 square foot house on three acres for my family by the age of 30, thinking I was going to live on the north side of Colorado Springs for the rest of my life. I was doing my best to obey my unseen master that was pulling my strings, create wealth. God called Mari and me to move to a new city and leave everything we knew and start fresh around that time. And um, then there was a global economic recession that you might remember. And so we joined the Accidental Landlord Club of 2008. You know, 6,000 square foot homes on three acres were not flying off the shelves at that time regardless of how old or young you were. And so um, we turned that crazy thing into a rental property, moved up here with nothing. We spent all our savings to get this church going and I came to an internal breaking point. It's all I could do to keep that thing afloat and not give the keys back to the bank and be unable to buy a house for the next decade. Then the economy started to recover and the black forest burned down and my house didn't. I've told you that story before. Half of me was glad and half of me was sad. <laughs> so that didn't do wonders for the property value. Somewhere in the midst of that, I just came to a breaking point and uh, life, whether I was seeking out self-awareness of, or not, had a way of holding up a mirror to me and showing me the God that I was serving and the other thing that was pulling my strings. And I had read it a thousand times before, but this time I heard Jesus say, you cannot serve me and money. So I'm not one who's given to dramatic, sensational, or high emotion expressions of faith. I I admire people that do that, that like sense God say to do something outlandish and they do it. I more do methodical, steady, one step after the next kinds of things. I try to be the guy that just makes minor good decisions in in long succession. Um, But I sensed the Lord as a a point of surrender ask me to do something that I was uncomfortable doing, and that was to to give away my car. You know, we lived in the far south suburbs. I was, I commuted with all the other millions of people on I-25 in the morning um, because I couldn't afford to live in the the parish of my own church. And... um, So after some 
checking for signs of food poisoning or other ailments that would have impaired my judgment. I sold my car. I gave the money away to someone who needed it. I don't think the point was that, I mean, that God cared deeply about that need, but God could have met it in a thousand ways. I think the point was me. I needed um, my Kung Fu grip pried off of that thing, that control lever, that control lever that was controlling me. And I, um, I took the light rail to work and I, I bummed rides and carpooled and it was humbling. Um, and um, I've never felt so free. And so what I speak this morning, I know a little bit of, and I know it's true, and I want you to believe it. So normally we get to this point in the, me- in the message and in the service, and we ask, so what does this look like? How do we do it practically? But see, the postures of the heart, they're not so much about doing, are they, as about being. So instead, I want to close by asking of the text, what does it feel like to live free? What does this posture of heart experientially? Psalm 4 concludes by describing the posture of freedom. How life goes when we trust God with our money and live free of its control. And in verse 7, I love this. It says, you've given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of green and new wine. Offering sacrifices in the right spirit, depending on God, you've given me an inheritance of greater joy than money could ever afford. And listen, friends, I know this. I've experienced it. I wish it for you. Living free, living free in Jesus brings joy that money will never be able to give you. It's sad how often I see people who've got the most money have the least joy. Now, those who have no money aren't exempt from this truth because we can have none of it and think of little else and it can pull all of our strings. Money has power. Make no mistake, it has the power to provide for needs, to accomplish goals, to build institutions. It has the power also to enslave you, but it does not have the power to satisfy you. Money will never fulfill you. Verse eight reads, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. You alone, O Lord, are the one who can provide for me. There is incredible peace in living free of money's control. Oh, I experienced it. The weirdest thing, being at the bottom of my uh, financial barrel ever in my life. I hope never to go back to that situation. You don't know what a day brings, but I'm gonna really work hard to have that day not come again, right? And then giving away my car and taking the light rail and walking everywhere. And the peace that I experienced It's indescribable. Seeing God provide, you become more and more confident that he will provide again. And friends, it's impossible to put a dollar value on being able to go to sleep with confidence, without angst, 
without worrying in your secret heart of hearts when you close your eyes and try to turn off your mind, how is this going to come out? How will I pay that bill? But knowing instead that the God who has provided and provided will provide again. And so going to sleep with peace, going to bed with a smile on your face, it is invaluable. And I wish this for you. So I want to challenge you this year to become a worship giver and to find the freedom of total surrender. Like Paul wrote, not looking for a gift, but for what may be credited to your account. How deeply I desire for us collectively to experience the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is what we were made for. Let nothing control you. Let Jesus be everything and live in freedom. Amen. All right, well, this concludes our postures of the heart. May God give us grace to live into these ways of God over the course of 2020. Would you stand with me? Let me just pray this over you as a blessing. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would release in our congregation and reveal to my friends the glorious freedom of the children of God. Lord, let nothing control us. Lord, would you graciously, gently reveal what's pulling our strings and would you give us grace to trust you in every area of our lives. And as we surrender this area and every area, may we live free. We want that joy and I pray it into my friends. We want that peace. Speak it over them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you all very much. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 